turn to Mark 15. We're continuing a text that I had intended to be one sermon, but it, I think it's going to become a small little series. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Mark 15, 20 to 26. If you open your phone, which I'm sure is locked and put on silent, but if you were to take your phone out and look at it, those of you with smartphones, you will see a, a, a grid of images or icons. And uh, whether or not you know it, uh, a lot of thought and design went into the development of those images. A well-designed image or, or symbol or icon is very powerful, and companies put a lot of money into getting a, a graphic designer or an artist to design a symbol for them. The purpose of a symbol is to convey or express something without words being said. And let me ask you, what symbol do you think best communicates the central message of the Christian faith? What image, what icon? Well, you're, you're, you're yes. You're stealing my thunder here. But yes, it's the cross. It's not a fish. It's not a fishing boat. It's not a manger. It's not a bracelet with a W, a W, a J, and a D on it. It's not a rainbow, a, thr- a throne, or a crown, or even even a book or an empty tune, as Sarah said, and she's right. She gets a gold star. It is, in fact, a crown. All the, a cross. <laughs> cross. Pray for me. All, all, all those other icons, all those other images do convey important truths about the Christian faith, but they don't they don't express, they don't get across the most essential truth, the most important thing there is to know about belonging to Christ and following Christ. Only, only the cross gets the most important bits across without words. It is the best symbol. And that's why we see it, the cross on church steeples. We see them on hospitals. We see them on Christian schools You may have them on a t-shirt or a mug or a bracelet or a ring. The cross is the most central picture of the message of Jesus Christ. And it's because of this, it directly conveys the most important thing Jesus did for us. He took our place. Mark 10 45 says the son of man, Jesus said the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a substitute in exchange for the for the many. The cross conveys that central pitiful truth. It's not an oversight then that all four gospels, which take different pot shots and uh, to different degrees, uh, cover the early life of Jesus in different ways, they all in unison slow to a crawl when it comes to Calvary, when it comes to the suffering and dying of Jesus. Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. The cross of Jesus Christ and everything it declares, it is absolutely central to the Christian faith. And so it would be wise, it would be good for us to think deeply and to stretch the gray cells as we come to this scene. And I gave you an outline last week. The concluded scorn, the conscripted sojourner, the crucifixion site, and the crucified sovereign. We're going to take it, we're going to go through the third point and we're going to take a, a brief jab at the fourth point, and I'll come back to that next week. But that's just to give us context. Let's read uh, the text in its entirety. After they had mocked him, no. Then they brought him to the pl- to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots 
for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charges against him read, The King of the Jews. We come to the crucifixion site in verse 22 and 23. Mark Mark begins in verse 22. He begins with Jesus being led as a condemned man to the crucifixion site. Beloved, these are his final steps. These steps will see him transformed and changed from, uh, we could say, a dead man walking figuratively to a dead man hanging quite literally. Mark says he was taken to Golgotha, which he tells us means place of the school, tapas cranion. What word does cranion sound like? Cranium, the noggin, the skull. Why that name? Well, some have suggested that this site was a, was a knoll or a mound or some kind of mountain that resembled a skull. There is a traditional site today. Eric, can you pl- show the picture? This is a picture of the traditional site today called Gordon's Calvary. Do you see the, see the, see the eye sockets and the nose? Now, I saw this eyeball, eyeball nose. Yeah, well, so I, I, I saw this site, and it was like those, you know those pictures where you, it, it, it's a, it looks like a, a TV channel out of focus, and, and, you know, someone's like, oh, there's a unicorn. And it's like, I don't see it. That was me when I was here. I didn't, I didn't see that. I kind of see it now. But I've been there. That, this is called Gordon's Calvary. It, it, it does kind of resemble the face of a skull. It was found in 1867. There's another more likely spot found under the Church of the, of the Holy Sepulchre, which Constantine commemorated as the location where Jesus died. That place, uh, two main objections why why uh, the Holy Sepulchre is not the site is because it is currently inside the walls of Jerusalem. That's one objection. But in Jesus' day, it was outside the walls of Jerusalem. The city has expanded uh, in the times that it's been destroyed and rebuilt. Um, another objection is that, it, is that it doesn't even remotely look like a skull under the church. Well, that's because the, the ground was leveled and raised and a church was built on top of it. But uh, we, were, we were there down in the catacombs and we found little holes in, in the, uh, down in the foundation rocks that could have housed or could have upheld crucifixion poles or, the, or crosses. Ultimately, we don't know for sure where... Calvary was, but one thing we do know is that it was outside the city gates. John tells us in John nineteen twenty that it was outside; it was near the city, which means it can't be in the city. Matthew twenty seven thirty two in, in our, a parallel account says that they were going out to crucify him. Hebrews thirteen twelve specifically tells us he suffered outside the gate. Outside the gate. That, that is where rubbish was taken. That was where trash and filth and unclean things were sent. It was a reproach to be consigned outside the gate. It was, it was a place of reproach and degradation and rejection. It was like quarantine. The diseased, the unclean, the cursed, they all were sent outside the gate. They were sent outside the city. We was just a couple months ago, we looked at uh, the fires of Gehenna. I think it was in chapter 11. The fires of Gehenna, where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies because rubbish and filth and trash and debris is and waste of all kinds is constantly being placed there and thrown out onto the heap. It was a never-ending, smoldering heap of misery that never seemed to go away. That was outside the gate. If we look in history, we see that heroes, when they die and they're buried, where are their burial sites? Inside or outside? 
inside. They're, their burial sites are inside the city. Libraries and parks and places that people want to go to, places that people would like to be. Green, lush places, places that are beautiful and attractive to look at. The heroes and patriots, people that we look up to are given those places for their burial sites. Villains and rebels and 'er ne'er-do-wells are disposed of outside the city in places that nobody wants to linger. Eric, there's one more picture. This is this is a picture, maybe you can read it. The above stone marks the approximate site of the burial in St. Giles' graveyard of John Knox, the Scottish, the great Scottish divine. He was one of the, pure, the Scottish reformers. And he, at the time, he was just buried somewhere randomly outside the city. And they only know approximately where he was buried. This is now a parking lot, and John Knox is approximately buried in parking space number 23. Heroes and people that are respected are buried inside. Societal rejects, pariahs, scum are thrown outside. Jesus is taken outside to die. Hebrews 13, 12, 14 says this, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And like a good preacher, the author of Hebrews gives us application. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Let's think about that for a second. If you desire to see the kingdom that is to come, if you have the sense to realize that the good old USA is not, as, as the author of Hebrews has said, is a city which is lasting. If you have the sense to see that, if you desire the kingdom to come, if you desire the life and the kingdom that Jesus promises to give when he returns, then you will need to go outside the gate. We will need to leave the posh comforts of our cultural Christianity, we will have to leave being, and, and give up being accepted and go outside and embrace him. Being his follower means you need to, re- to bear his reproach as well. That's a, that's a $20 word. What is reproach? Reproach is disdain, criticism. A negative reputation, negative, poor public opinion, being disliked, being distrusted, being lied about, being rejected and mistreated, having the law used against you unlawfully, being persecuted, being maligned, being physically abused, and even potentially being killed. That is what reproaches. Author of Hebrews says very clearly, you need to go outside the gate bearing his reproach. And isn't this what Jesus said? Isn't, isn't this how he defined? Isn't this the standard, the terms of acceptance whereby you were to sign your name and dot the box when you decide to become a Christian? Isn't this what he said would be the cost? Anybody, anybody, Not just the best among you. Not just the elite Christians. Not the uber Christians. If anybody would come after me. If anybody would be my disciple. What must he be willing to do? Nigh himself. Take up his cross. That is a word of reproach. He must take up his cross. Never, it never ceases to amaze me how, on one hand in society, people lift up some caricature of Jesus that is admirable and that is noble and is worthy. But yet when we tell them what Jesus said and what he did, oh no, my Jesus wouldn't do that. 
being a follower of Jesus means you have been embraced one and you follow one who is a reproach to men. We do not follow a popular Jesus. We do not belong and worship and obey and trust a Jesus who is admired by the masses. We place our lives in the hand of a Jesus who was a reproach of men, who was a worm in their eyes. Isn't this how we have seen him treated? He's a worm. So don't be surprised when people mock you and ridicule you for trying to be faithful to the biblical Jesus, church. Don't be surprised when you find out that there is a stinging cost to your Christianity. And I would say this, if there is no cost to your Christianity, if the greatest sacrifice you have to make is getting to church on time, if the greatest sacrifice you have to make is memorizing a verse or two or having to forego on that movie that you really wanted to watch, that is the greatest sacrifice you have to make you need to ask yourself, have you gone outside the gate? And beloved, that is, a, that is a question that you will have to answer for yourself. Have you gone outside the gate to meet your Savior? Have you embraced him on his terms, not yours? And if not, why not? Why not? Why not today? Why not now? Have you died to self? Have you followed Christ? Have you? Can you honestly say as you look in the mirror, can you say that you have gone outside to the gate and embraced your Savior? Mark tells us, going on in the text, Mark tells us in verse 23 that they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. This was something they tried to do again and again and again. It's the imperfect tense. They kept trying to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he, they, they were not successful because, as Mark says very plainly, he refused it. He did not drink it. He, he flatly refused to drink it. Now, this is interesting. Myrrh had a, a stupefying or an intensif- uh, intoxifying effect when it was put into wine. The, the Talmud, which was the Jewish commentary on the law, uh, said this, and this was an instruction. When one is led out to execution, he is to be given a goblet of wine containing a grain of frank- frankincense, which is similar to myrrh, in order to benumb his senses. For it is written, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish and wine unto the bitter in soul and this became a tradition as men as people were were being marched out to their deaths to be executed uh traditionally it was the the rich women uh who would go out and give uh this 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 uh spiked wine this spiked alcohol to the condemned but and we do know from luke's account and 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 you'll see down in verse 41 there are women at the scene Luke tells us that there was a large crowd following him and there were many women lamenting him and wailing and crying and weeping that, he, that this has happened to him. And we see them standing by down in verse 41. Many women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. But these are not the... It is not these ladies, these charitable ladies... That is the they in verse 23. The they in verse 23 is the same they in verse 22, the same they in verse 21 and 20 and 19 and 18. It it is the soldiers. The soldiers are the active participants in this entire scene. Jesus is entirely passive. The soldiers are active. They are the ones offering him this spiked wine. Why? Well, it's not to be charitable. They're not doing it out of mercy or out of generosity. Well, and we can, so we can rule that out. They could be doing it to mock him, 
And we actually see that in Luke's account. After he's been crucified, the soldier, Luke writes, the soldiers also mocked him. And, and notice that these two actions are conjoined and one explains the other. They all, uh, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. The offer of the wine is linked to the mocking. And so we, we could see uh, we could see that the spiteful, scornful mockery of, of the the of the the mockery of a kingly court that we saw two weeks ago is continuing. Now they are taking the place of of, of cupbearers, of royal cupbearers, bringing the chalice, the goblet that would offer even a momentary reprieve from the raging thirst that Jesus has by this point. And it's, a, it's not even nice-tasting wine. Luke tells us it was gall. Like, like vinegar. But that happens after he was crucified. This, in verse 23, this is, this is before the crucifixion has taken place. This is before they put him on the cross. And when we think about it, there is a good reason why you would want to uh, uh, offer a soon-to-be-crucified man a spiked drink. And that would be nailing, that, that would make nailing him to the cross all the more easier. Men typically struggle and flail and squirm and resist and fight back when railroad ties are hammered through their wrists and legs. But this calming sedative made, would make them docile. Compliant, relaxed. So really, it was done for the sake of the soldiers, not for Jesus. But notice that they kept trying to give him the wine. They kept trying to put the spout into his mouth and pouring it in, but he refused to take it. He did not take it. Why? Because he is a Baptist and they were offering him wine and not Welch's? No. Why did Jesus flat out reject the wine well there are multiple plausible reasons one they is that he didn't want to renege on his promise not to drink from the fruit of the vine remember in the upper room in mark fourteen twenty five, what did jesus said i will not drink of the fruit of the vine until i drink it again anew with you in the kingdom not one of his promises, not one of his words will fail. He is so utterly faithful. We all know what it's like to have somebody make promises to us and to have them renege, to have them fall short on their word. And sometimes that happens with great big promises, very significant promises, promises that break our heart when those promises are broken. This is just an itty-bitty little promise. This is a little oath. I mean, surely, we, we, could, we could allow Jesus to just, you know, we could give him a mulligan. We could give him a redo on this one itty-bitty little oath not to drink from the fruit of the vine. I mean, he could really use this now. But not, word, not one word of, of his, not one oath, not one promise fails. He is so utterly faithful, just like the word of God. How that should comfort us. What Jesus says he means. And he means what he says. And what he says will come to pass. Secondly, he needed a sharp mind. How, put on your memory caps. How did Jesus respond to his suffering in the tempt, uh, when he was tempted in the wild? What did he bring to mind? Scripture. And we'll see that down, uh, down in verse... Um, 34. He's going to quote Psalm 22, 1. And in, in the other Gospels, he quotes other passages. He responded to his suffering, to his temptation, to this trial, this agony. He responded to it with Scripture. His heart, his mind is so saturated with the Word of God that that gave Jesus strength to endure this hour. What specifically was he thinking of? I think it was Psalm 23. Psalm 22 and 23. We know he quotes Psalm 22. 
And somebody, somebody once told me one time, and I, it has never gone out of my mind, Psalm 22 sure seems to be Christ before the, uh, uh, during the cross. Psalm 23 seems to be the peace immediately after the cross. And Psalm 24 is the glory and vindication that comes as a result of the cross. At the very least, we can be dogmatic. He's thinking about Psalm 22. He quotes it. He quotes Psalm 22, 1. But for him to have received that spiked wine, for him to have numbed his senses, for his mind to have been made sloppy and unreceptive, that would have been sowing to the flesh. And if you remember, Peter has already shown us what, it, what happens when one sows to the flesh. So he needed a sharp mind for his cross-bearing. And he got that by avoiding the drink. Third, he needed to experience all of the suffering. He needed to experience and endure and withhold and go through and bear all the suffering. I mean, this is not called the passion for no reason. This this is his cross-bearing, beloved. This is his atoning for sin. This is this is him taking your place. This is him taking my place. He has submitted himself to the Father's will. He has begun to drink the cup. How then could he allow himself to cut corners on this most critically important task? This is, this is not some minimum wage worker flipping a burger at McDonald's for you. This is the Son of God going to work, rolling up his sleeves, and like a strong man going to work for you. He can't afford to cut any corners. He bears all the weight. He bears all the burden of sin. Every single last iota of every single last ounce. And with undeterred resolve. With undeterred determination. He pays for it all. And he pays for it with his conscious suffering. Which he wouldn't have had had he been made even momentarily drunk. Those in hell, and this is not a pleasant thought for us, but it's the truth, those in hell will bear their own punishment for sin and they will not be given such commodity. They will not be given a gesture of an anesthetic. They will receive the full weight of their condemnation As Jesus has already said, the fire will not go out. The worm does not die. And if sinners don't get an easy pass, if they don't get an, if they don't get any, some kind of anesthesia, if if they don't get a sedative for when they suffer and pay for their sins, then neither does our substitute when he pays and suffers and dies for our sins. No easy path. No path of least resistance for our Savior. As he redeems us. He brings his A game. To his atoning work. What a good savior we have. And I also want to say as a side note. He applies that same A game. That same attentiveness. That same we could say. Sobriety and focus and resolve. And determination and conscious effort. He applies that same. All of that to his work as as our high priest who knows our struggles, who's intimately acquainted with us and, he, and knows our struggles and our triumphs and our, our hardships and constantly faith, faithfully prays for us. Jesus Christ brings his A game in being your advocate and your support every day. 1 John 2, 1 says this, we have an advocate before the Father. Hebrews 7.25 He always lives, and that could be translated, to the uttermost, He lives to make intercession for His people. 
What a great Savior we have. That is the crucifixion site. Now we come to the crucified sovereign. And I'm going to get four words into this. Three words in the Greek before we'll have to put a pause and continue next week. But crucified sovereign. Three words in the Greek, four in ours, and they crucified him. Does that strike you as being rather brief for such a momentous event? Wouldn't you have liked a little more detail? All, all the Gospels are, are shockingly brief and, and, and nondescript when they say, and they crucified him. They all do. But that's because crucifixion didn't need to be explained to those to whom the Gospels were, were, were originally written to. No further comments were needed because Roman, Romans crucified their victims in very public places with maximum visibility and maximum exposure to, to everybody. This is, this is not happening around the bend, down in some gulch, in, the, in a valley, in a private little con, you know, enclave somewhere. This isn't happening in an alley. This isn't happening out in the wilderness. This is happening on Main Street, right outside the gate. This is probably right outside the gate. And so everybody knew precisely what was happening when Mark writes these words. For, for, the, for any of the gospel writers to have provided the details that we really want would have been redundant. We all, all know how certain people feel about redundancy. So having arrived at the crucifixion site, the, the beam would have been laid down on the ground and attached to the, to the vertical beam that, um, that was to be stuck into the ground, Jesus would be instructed to strip. Maybe he had a loincloth. The, the, the Romans might have respected the sensitivities of the Jews. Uh, many uh, uh, crucifixes that you see, there's a loincloth. Traditionally, historically, people were crucified naked. He would have been instructed to strip. We know, we know he's stripped because his clothes are going to be uh, uh, taken by the soldiers in the, the following verses. And he's, he's, he's ordered and made to lay down on his back with his arms stretched out across the beam that he has carried. And, and Simon has helped him carry for the last several miles, which should have only been about a 600-yard trek. His arms would be stretched out, and one soldier would would bend down, and he would he would firmly place his knee on the arm, pinning it temporarily, pinning it in place. And he would take his hand, and he would find the hollow points. And last night I looked at the what these two bones are called, and I have no idea what they were, what they're called now. So uh, he was going to find the hollow point, like just imagine right between the the, the band of my watch. And he would take a, uh, basically a railroad spike, a long five to seven inch nail, approximately a half inch thick. It would be square. It would be rugged. It wouldn't be a nice, smooth, galvanized nail that you could get at Home Depot. It would be a, it would be a rugged nail. And he would place it right over that hollow point in the wrist between the bones. He, he wasn't crucified in the hands. He would have fallen right off the cross. Being posted by his hands would not support the body. But he he could if he was between the bones. So one soldier is is pinning him down with his knee and holding the the spike in place. A second soldier would come with a hammer and he would strike the nail through through his wrist still technically part of his hand, driving it through, pinning his arm to the beam. The hammer bearer would then go to the other side and find a, find a third soldier pinning the other arm down, holding a nail in the other arm in the same way as the other soldier. And the hammer bearer would strike and pin the second arm to the cross. 
he, the, that's, the hammer bearer would then turn and find the, a fourth soldier. Remember, John tells us there were four soldiers for each crucified victim. The fourth soldier would be, would be holding Jesus' feet in place. They would be somewhere between a 45 and 90 degree angle. They would be side by side, and his knees would be slightly flexed. And that's going to allow him to pu- uh, uh, push himself up to help him to breathe. He is not taught on the, his body is not tight or taut on the cross. He is slightly flexed. He is given some mobility. And that nail would be driven through the arches of his feet into the vertical beam. All the nails having been driven in, one of the soldiers would, would, would confirm that they are in place, that, Je- that, the, that Jesus, the victim, is effectively secured to the cross. And then the remaining three soldiers in unison would lift him up, sometimes with, by means of pulleys, other, other what times just roughing him up. And the cross would be raised up And the bottom would slam into a post hole that would hold the whole thing upright. And as that beam fell into place, gut-wrenching pain would go throughout his, would course throughout his entire body as major joints are violently, brutally pulled out of their natural positions. Now, here is a survey of the symptoms that would go on during crucifixion. Nausea, fever, traumatic fever, intense thirst, constant cramps, incessant throbbing pain from every part of the body, sleeplessness, dehydration, infection, which would lead to gangrene. Dizziness, starvation, back lacerations, delirium, exhaustion, air hunger, panic attacks, fluid and serum building up in his lungs, fluid and serum building up in the cavity around his heart, increasing suffocation, inflamed joints, crushed tendons, lacerated veins, burning sensation, especially uh, as the median nerves have been have been uh, violently perforated and torn and now pinched by the nails. Muscle fatigue, partial paralysis, crushing chest pains as the heart has to work harder and harder to pump the blood that is getting thicker and thicker. Tortured lungs trying to gasp smaller and smaller breaths. Frederick, oh, and spasms entire the entire body would shake frederick farrar says this in light of in light of all the the symptoms that he observed all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself death which is that awful unknown enemy at whose appearance man usually shudders most He says, crucifixion makes death bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. He suffered for you outside the gate. Lenski says it was a great relief. Sometimes they could could last up to four days. Lenski says it was a great relief for the prisoner to learn he was going to die that day. Now, the primary cause of death in crucifixion was none of those things. It was suffocation. As the sagging weight of the body put more and more pressure on the lungs, it became more and more difficult until the point it becomes impossible to breathe. But the Romans were very skilled in their additions to crucifixion. 
And one of the things they did was delay death, delay the onset of death by, the, by adding the nail through the feet. The originally crucified victims were just simply hung on a tree. And so their body is taut as, they are, as, the, as gravity pulls them down. But by adding the nail in the feet, the Romans allowed the victim the opportunity to prolong his life. It's like maliciously dangling a carrot before a burden, a beast of burden. The more, and the more the victim tries to prolong his life and save his life, the more his torture becomes unbearable. By pushing himself up, the victim could relieve the strain on his lungs and he could take several short gasping breaths before his arms and his quivering legs gave out and he sags back down. And each time he, he lifts himself up and then sags down, his lacerated scourged back is rubbing against the grains of the rugged cross. And as I said, victims, if they were determined... If they really struggled for their lives, they could live up to four days. And I imagine uh, one person said uh, that birds and animals would often begin feasting on the victims before they had even died. And I imagine the first things to go would be the fingers and the toes. They would be the first to necrotize and to be eaten by carrion. And mind you, the crucified crucifixion was not lifted way high. They were only about a foot or two above the ground. So wild dogs could come in the middle of the night and start eating at the feet. Cicero, a Roman senator, said that crucifixion was a cruel and disgusting penalty and was the worst extreme of tortures inflicted upon slaves. And the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Josephus said it was the most pitiable of deaths. It's no wonder, in light of what we've just heard, that with the Romans' skill, with their craft, Crucifixion became the most feared and dreaded form of execution known to history. Now, we have, a, we have a very sanitized picture of execution now. It's very sanitized. With being blindfolded and in a very quiet room behind closed doors with, with private audiences, if there's an audience, and uh, as, as they're strapped into an electric chair or uh, blindfolded or perhaps a firing squad, Executions can be very somber. They can be very religious and words, very somber words can be said on behalf of the condemned. And with like, with situations or circumstances like that, even, even a condemned criminal, if he, if he holds his head up high and if he remains stoic and he accepts his fate as he, as he goes to his death, even a condemned man can have some semblance of dignity as he dies. In today's executions. Some semblance of dignity. There was no dignity on a Roman cross. In addition to the extreme pain and suffering. It was the epitome of shameful indecent exposure. As the victim is hung naked before a crowd rotting away. It was unending pain that only got worse as the victim's effort to fight for his life only brought on more and more and more and more pain. He was punished for his, for fighting for his life. Now, to, to give a sense for the, for the physiological hopelessness, C. Dave, C. Truman Davis writes this. As the arms fatigue, Great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps, he can no longer push himself up. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs. And in the bloodstream and cramps partially subside spasmodically 
which means in brief irregular bursts. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen, and death is offset for a short while. One man said, crucifixion brought all that pain and death could offer. Let me ask you a question. Why did Christ have to die this way? Why couldn't he have been struck with a heart attack? Did you ever wonder that? Why did he have to suffer this brutal death? Why did he have to endure the severity of Roman crucifixion? Why couldn't he have just died in his sleep and it would have all been over? Why the cross? Why, why the scourging? Why the relentless mocking and being punched and beaten in the face by slaps and fists and reeds? Why the th- crown of thorns shoved into his brow? And why did he have to hang on a Roman cross for six hours and go through all that stuff I just said? I have two answers for you. And there are many, but I'm running out of time. This is what I think are the most important two. One. The severity of his suffering reveals the severity of sin. The severity of his suffering reveals the severity of sin. I know I joke a lot about sin about people thinking their sins are oopsies. But sadly, many people do view their sins like that. As nothing more than, than, than something that, that, than a little minor, meager trifle of an offense that just needs a little slap on the hand or a simple little act of penance. Lawson, Steve Lawson said that sin is cosmic treason. Sin is not an oopsie or a whoopsie. It is cosmic treason. It is rebellion. It is slapping God in the face. The severity of his suffering reveals the severity of our sin. If you don't view your sin rightly, there's a problem. First Peter tells us that we were not redeemed with gold or silver. We were not redeemed with little acts of penance. We weren't redeemed with little slaps on the wrist. What were we redeemed by? Precious blood. Costly blood. And it's not, it's not just the physical. In fact, it's not the physical blood at all. You know how I know that? There are at least four Roman soldiers who have Jesus' blood on them at this moment in the text. There are many people uh, who, uh, who had Jesus' physical blood splattered on him at some point in this day as they punched his face, as they scourged his back, as they pushed the crown of thorns into his brow. They got his blood on them. It's his suffering that is paying for sin. There's an application for us from this. It's this. Think more profoundly about how sinful your sin is. The second thing the severity of his suffering reveals is the greatness of God's love. Romans 5, 8 says that, that the love of God is manifest in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. 
And we're looking at it right now. While we were sinners, while we brought nothing to the table, while we made no offers, while we made no bargains, he came and did all the work. Praise God. Salvation is of the Lord. The severity of his suffering reveals the greatness of God's love. The greater the price that one is willing to pay, the greater the love behind the one paying the price. The severity of his suffering shows the severity of his love. Let me leave with one more question. What place does the cross have in your life? I opened talking about icons and symbols and pictures. When you look at a cross, what comes to mind? Maybe you think about your religious traditions and your going to church and reading your Bible and listening to boring sermons with the occasionally funny joke. Maybe maybe you think of nothing. Maybe nothing comes to mind. Maybe, maybe you're too busy thinking about lunch or sports or what you're going to do this afternoon or what you're going to do this week. What comes to mind when you think of the cross, beloved? I think we must see that he took our place amongst many things. He took our place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, bring us to a place of conviction of our sin. Our sin it was is so great, it is so vile, it is so offensive. It is so unjust, it is so unrighteous, it is so wicked and evil and lawless that nothing short of the death of God could pay its penalty. A lifetime of good works could not cover our sins. A lifetime of giving alms and a regular faithful church attendance could not pay for our sins. A lifetime of doing many good things and and devoting ourselves to memorizing all of your scripture could not cover our sins. Our sins were so bad that you had to send your son to die in our place. If there's one person here who is not thinking rightly of their sins, Lord, lead them to a place where they would. Use the truth the blessed truth that the Son of God took our place and suffered for us that we might live unto him, let that make a profound impact on us today. Change our thoughts. Use that profound truth to to change what we place before our eyes. Use it to change what we place in our minds, what we read, what we watch, what we listen to, who we spend our time with the priorities we have, the things we do with, our, with ourselves and our time and our energy and our money. Let the profound truth that Christ Jesus t- took our place change us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking our place.